The last thing we heard Paul say in this passage was that there in verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or, by faith, the righteous will live. So, our natural follow-up question to that affirmation should be, why should we pursue this righteousness by faith? If we've been following Paul to this point, we could say that just because Paul is obligated to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, as we saw in verses 14 and 15, and just because he isn't ashamed of it, doesn't mean that the Gentiles, ourselves included, are obligated to receive the gospel that Paul is obligated to preach unashamed. There's got to be a better reason than he's mentioned so far to pursue this righteousness of God by faith that he's obligated to preach and isn't ashamed of. And as it turns out, there is a better reason for us to embrace this righteousness by faith. As it turns out here, we can read that Paul's hearers should embrace God's righteousness by faith because his wrath is being revealed against all the unrighteousness out there. So if we want to escape the wrath of God, we embrace his righteousness, and his righteousness is a righteousness that can only be gained by faith. So we should be motivated to pursue this righteousness that has been revealed. In this section of the second half of chapter 1, actually verses 18 through 32, we believe that Paul is talking here about the unrighteousness of the Gentiles in contrast to his discussion of the unrighteousness of the Jews that will come in the next section beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and going for the next chapter and a half or so. And I believe most who would hold a high view of Scripture see that verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 1 act as a heading over the whole section of 118 through 320, a big chunk of Paul's argument in the book of Romans. So when we read verse 18 and 19 here, we're reading a topic sentence, essentially. And so I want to read these two verses again before we move on. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And that's what Paul is going about proving now in the rest of this extended paragraph through, or this extended section through chapter 3, verse 20. We'll probably be reminding ourselves then of that from time to time. But also, this immediate section, 18 through 32, is one of the most often referenced passages in all the Bible, right now, even today, 
I mentioned that a few moments ago as we were getting started, and surely we can acknowledge that this is the case. It's deeply disturbing to many people in our day, this passage of Scripture is, because it expresses God's view with clarity regarding subjects on which people would much rather hold their own views. And it does so in such a way that those people truly are left without excuse. This passage is unambiguous in what it is saying, and it's anchored into the revealed truth of God's Word from beginning to end. It reflects the heart and mind of God. And it reflects the principles of the gospel that is being preached by the Apostle Paul and by all churches who preach Christ since that day. Now, my friends, we don't revel in this statement or chest bump in the truths that are here or strut about in condemning ways in our relationships with this generation because of this passage. It's actually tragic that such words need to be spoken, and if they are spoken, it's so tragic that they have to be referred to in the ways that they're being referred to these days to prove the truth of things that we never thought could have been doubted. But since those things are doubted, and since we do need to affirm these truths, we affirm them without apology. And we seek to help people in our day to grasp them, to understand them, to appreciate how their good is being preserved and protected by what's being affirmed here in this text. We, we seek to help people understand why they're true and how. So we're going to take the next three Sundays with the remainder of chapter 1. I will be covering verses 18 through 23 today. Pastor Nick will take verses 24 through 27 next Sunday. And then Pastor Kip will finish with verses 18 through 32 the Sunday after that. So you get to hear three of us from this text and yet it is so tightly interwoven that it really is one message, one section, but it does have some pretty natural breaks in it. And I think we've identified those in a way that it could be beneficial to move through this text according to that outline. 18 through 23 today, 24 through 27 next Sunday, God willing, and then 32 through, or 28 through 32 the following week. So let's dig into our text today. As I said, the why and the how that this is true. So that's what's going to be my outline this morning, and you can see that in your bulletin there. Why God's wrath falls on people, verses 18 through 20, and how people earn God's wrath, verses 21 to 23. Now, even as we're moving through 18 through 20, you're going to hear a couple of places where it sounds like we've already transitioned to the how, so I'm going to try to keep you on task if you're taking notes and staying under the right heading uh, as we move through this text, as I said, it's so tightly reasoned that it can feel like we're moving ahead even before we do. We'll give you that in advance. So let's look at this in order, the why and the how. First, why God's wrath falls on people, verses 18 through 20. Last Sunday, we looked at four explanatory statements. Remember that? Just a week ago, seems like a month at this point. 
Last Sunday, we looked at four explanatory statements in verses 16 and 17. The first three began with that uh, connecting word for that tells you that a ground or a basis, the foundation of what's just been said is going to be given to you in the next statement because is a good English uh, substitute for for in the way that it's used in, that, uh, in, in this section of uh, Paul's letter to Rome. So he saw four in the middle of verse six, or in the beginning of verse 16, in the middle of verse 16, again at the beginning of verse 17, and then an as it is written in the middle of verse 17, which is the next connecting word, and each one of those were explanatory statements about what went before. So if you'll stick with me for, with the grammar lessons for just a, a moment or two longer, we want to figure out how, how to handle the four that's at the beginning of verse 18. You're having a different translation of Scripture. Your, your translation may even have left it out because it's a challenging word to handle. But the question is, how does that for get used? I'm going to actually approach it from a different angle, though. I'm going to raise a question. Why do we pursue the righteousness of God by faith? I've already given you a, one form of the answer to that from this text. I'm going to just answer from the text at this point. Why do we pursue the righteousness of God by faith? Verse 18, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's why. Some suggest that this four is actually parallel to the one in the middle of verse 17. Or the as it is written and the four that's being explained by that statement in verse 17. Uh, and if it were a parallel with it, that would mean that in the gospel, both the righteousness of God and the wrath of God are being revealed from heaven, which is a true statement, all right? But the question is, what argument is Paul making here? One of the most helpful ways to understand the argument of a text that's reasoned the way Romans is, is by what we call discourse analysis. Sorry about this, but you're going to appreciate it. I know you're going to appreciate it. Your eyes are just going to pop open and say, wow, is that good, all right? It's called discourse analysis. There are several ways to do it. There are simple ways and complex ways. One of the simplest ways is just to read the text carefully, and when you see a connecting word, to see what it is that that word or that phrase that follows it is magnifying or amplifying or explaining. And if it's explaining the phrase that came right before it, then you indent that little statement, that part of the verse, under the one that's above it. Each of the four statements here is indented under the statement that went before because it's an explanation of that statement. The question is, does the four in verse 18 stand parallel to the one that was before it? So this gospel that's revealed is revealing the, the, the righteousness of God and it's revealing the wrath of God or is this four at the beginning of 18 indented and it's actually just explaining the statement that came before it so the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel and now our talk about the, the uh, wrath of God is actually just saying more about the righteousness of God that went before it that's the argument you can read Right? You can read a lot about that. There's a lot written about how to translate the four at the beginning of verse 18. One of the reasons I wanted to mention it to you. But that's what's at stake. We're just following the argument of the text. And do we, hate, do we get parallel statements here about the gospel? That God's righteousness and God's wrath are being equally revealed through it? 
Or is it the righteousness of God that's revealed and we understand something about his righteousness by his wrath that also comes along with it? I think it's the latter. It seems best to me that the, the typical use of the word for as an explanation for the phrase that came before it is the best way to handle this for at the beginning of verse 18. So we're continuing just to indent statements underneath one another as we move through chapter 1. And each one of these fours that appear is indented under the one above it. And they're all over the place. Have you noticed that? 16a, 16b, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Right? So when you see it that often, it's worth pausing for a moment to figure out, what, what do we do with these? How do we handle these? All right? Because that's a lot of explanations, and that's what makes Romans, number one, somewhat complex, but also meticulously reasoned, because Paul goes into that kind of detail to explain himself, all right? So, it seems best to see this as a typical use of for, and therefore as a response to our question of why God's righteousness is being revealed in the way it is, namely... A righteousness that's received by faith. We're answering that question. And the answer, the righteous shall live by faith. You shall receive this righteousness by faith because the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men in this world. So we embrace it by faith in order for it to absorb the wrath of God for Christ to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf rather than to absorb it ourselves. We receive his righteousness by faith to enjoy that blessing. But about this ungodliness that's being revealed here and this unrighteousness, this ungodliness shows itself in these people who are suppressing the truth as they actively, intentionally suppress God's truth in favor of their own truth thus exposing their undeniable righteousness. So the wrath of God is being made known against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and the ungodliness that's, being, that's receiving the wrath of God here is identified as it suppresses God's truth in favor of some other truth. That's what exposes undeniable unrighteousness in men and women. And by the way, it is that word that has both, even though it's translated men here in the ESV. So the question we want to ask is, do these people really know God's truth? Do they really know God's truth? And the answer is yes. Paul explains here, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is the Word of God. Talking to the guys in the basketball league again about whether we have ears to hear God when He speaks. We just read the Beatitudes together. That was a surprise to me. I would forgotten that we were going to be reading that passage. That's the passage we're using on Tuesdays and Thursday nights with the basketball league. And we just talked this past week about blessed are those who are meek. The characteristic of meekness is that we hear what God says, and we don't fight with it in our hearts and minds. We receive it. We receive what God gives as good. When God speaks, do you hear and receive? Or do you fight with it in your mind, in your heart? When God says what can be known about God is plain to them, 
because God has shown it to them. Do we believe that? That God has made himself plain? All right, how? How has he made himself plain? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, so whatever it is that God's making plain is invisible in and of itself. God has acted in such a way that that which is invisible is undeniable. Amazing. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So God's wrath is being revealed because he's made himself clearly and undeniably known in creation. But his creatures are suppressing that truth, resisting it, rejecting it, fighting with it in their minds, as we'll see, for their own form of truth, in favor of their own form of truth. So, Paul is saying, they are without excuse. There's no excuse for this. God has made himself clear, and you're suppressing that clarity and favoring something else. That's the nature of the sinful, fallen, broken heart. That's what we do. We fight against God. We rebel against His truth. Paul is saying on God's behalf here that this is an open and shut case when it comes to whether these people actually knew God. It's an open and shut case because he's made himself plain. Just, just think of it. It's the truth about God's deity and his power. Those are the two invisible attributes that he says are clearly known to the point that everybody who lives in this world is without excuse with regard to them. It's not the whole plan of this salvation, the righteousness of God revealed by faith, that's evident to everyone who lives in this world. But two things are, even though they're visible attributes, two things are clear to everyone who isn't suppressing them in unrighteousness, namely, that God is deity and that he is all-powerful. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived Ever since the creation of the world, there's God's testimony about what he's done. And it's a key point of argument here in the book of Romans. It's the thing that establishes the testimony to God's truth that leaves people without excuse before him. So it's the truth about God's deity and his power that are being, that are being suppressed here. Two of the most evident and undeniable attributes or qualities that he puts on open and accessible display throughout all of his creation. You might even say that God created in the way that he did in order that his eternal power and divine nature might be clearly perceivable to all who live in his universe. Wow. So this sets the scale for determining just how evil the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women actually are. 
It sets the scale. God has revealed these magnificent truths about himself in his world. And we're suppressing that. There is a scale by which to measure how evil unrighteousness and ungodliness actually are. To realize their own aims, his creatures will intentionally deny the most undeniable self-expressions of God himself in this world. Side by side with one another, the eternal power and divine nature of God evident in creation or my own truth that allows me to do what I please and I'll favor this one. That's unconscionably ungodly and unrighteous. Agreed? That's the testimony of Scripture. So that's why the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against these qualities, ungodliness and unrighteousness, but then against those who hold to them. Verse 18, that's why the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against them, but what are these folks actually doing? How are they going about suppressing these truths? There's our next question. It will just flow into our minds and hearts while reading the text. How are people earning God's wrath? And with this, we move into verses 21 through 23. Here it is. Here's how. Beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, once again, I have to stop there. For although they knew God, do you hear that? This is active, conscious, intentional suppression of truth. Because they knew God. This is one of the reasons why some think Paul is going all the way back to the beginning and talking about Adam and Eve here when evil first entered the world. And there's, there's a lot of writers on this topic that think that that's what he's talking about. This isn't just some general characteristic of the Gentile world in Paul's day, but is actually talking about the entry of evil into this created order. I actually think he is talking about the Gentile world. We'll pass by that quickly in a few moments as well. But it's interesting that it could be read that way, to be going back all the way to the beginning. And it's in part this statement that gives us that. For although they knew God, anyway, to pick up that thought, I don't think Paul's meaning that here about knowing God in that sense, that these people were reconciled to him and then turned away from that. I don't think we believe that that's possible. I believe he's talking about the fact that God has made his nature and his power sufficiently clear in what we see around us that we should surely be able to recognize at least his deity and that great power by what we see. And there's just no excuse for not recognizing and granting this very basic knowledge of him. So that's the sense, I believe, in which they knew God. So, although they knew God in this sense, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. <laughs> Again, I, I need to stop in the text. Isn't that interesting? The expression of thankfulness that's identified as having such wide-ranging power in so many different areas of the Christian life 
is identified here as one of the first expressions that when absent leaves the human heart vulnerable to rejecting two of the most basic manifestations of God's presence and power in this world. Their vulnerability comes when they cease to honor Him as God and give thanks to Him. And thus, their vulnerability is established and taken advantage of. So, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, and as a result, they became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. Worthless is a good synonym for futile. You know another one? I really appreciated this as I was reading it this week. One lexicon suggests that to cancel out is one way to understand the meaning of futile in this text. To cancel out. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because we might say that the cancel culture begins as we cancel out our own discernment of God in this world. That's an interesting thought. That the cancel culture is a symptom, not a cause. It's not the active protection of something. It's the undeniable exposure of something. The cancel culture begins as we cancel out our own discernment of God and His presence and His power in this world. As people went that way, Paul is saying, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. To quote one commentator, instead of acknowledging God as God by glorifying Him and thanking Him, human beings suppressed their knowledge and sank into idolatry, and that's what follows. Sank into a self-imposed entry into their own personal dark ages. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, which is where suppression of truth will always lead transitioning us from wisdom to foolishness because we can't recognize what's true. Now listen to this, verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Here's the course it follows. The glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, lesser things, lesser things than the image-bearing creatures that they are. So they turned away from a living and powerful God and redirected their worship toward things that grow old and die just like they do with themselves at the top of the spectrum of, of those things, but including lesser things underneath them that would also be worshipped and honored. Stunning foolishness. Stupidity, we might say. That's the direction Paul goes with this argument. 
So we have to ask the question that comes next. What do they gain from this? If this is the route that suppression of the truth and unrighteousness goes in the hearts and minds of rebelliously sinful people, what do we gain? What do we gain by going this direction? Once we see that the end result is that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Well, that question, what do we gain from this, will be addressed, <coughs> excuse me, each of the next two weeks, God willing. We'll see from the types of sins listed in the remainder of this passage what sorts of things these folks wanted to do that led them to suppress the truth about God in order to make room for those things. If you understand people, though, it won't be a surprising list to track. Even so, it truly is breathtaking how foolish image-bearing creatures can become as they grow more and more comfortable seeking to please themselves rather than God. We'll just make that statement as sort of an on-ramp into the next two weeks. It truly is breathtaking how foolish image-bearing creatures can become as they grow more and more comfortable seeking to please themselves rather than God. And my friends, it's not at all a new problem. The prophet Jeremiah saw it all in his day, all the way back in his day. In a, a very familiar text that clearly, as we read verse 11 of Jeremiah chapter 2, stands behind Paul's choice of wording and descriptive imagery here in Romans 1. We read there in Jeremiah 2, verses 11 and following, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then Jeremiah goes on to say some things that ring a little more familiarly in our ear. There's the setup. The very next verse, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. This is stunning foolishness, Jeremiah is reporting. Verse 13 then gives the imagery with which we are most familiar. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns. They can hold no water. There's the foolishness. There's the imagery. And the prophet Jeremiah helps us picture that from Romans 1. There is a good description of the utter foolishness we see here in our text today. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have to ask, what is our takeaway today? What is our takeaway from this text? And I would say to us first that it's so tempting, as I've mentioned at the beginning, to read Romans 1 and begin railing against the ungodliness of our day. This text gives us such basis for doing that. It gives us just the sort of ammunition we need to go that direction. There are so many expressions of it which are just as stunning in our day as these descriptions are here. Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Such foolishness. Giving up the fountain of living water. 
in order to drink from the broken cisterns that can hold no water. Choosing to to lick the rusty dust cake bottom of a leaky barrel just in order to have your own way and do your own thing. That's the way Jeremiah talked about it. That's the way Paul's talking about it. Just so, so foolish. But I believe there's a far better way for us to hear this with eyes focused on the vulnerabilities in our own hearts in our day and in order to be faithful gospel witnesses in a day that is characterized by some of the most unique expression of this sort of fallenness that's been around, I would say, for centuries. Far better way, eyes focused on our own hearts well before we turn our attention toward others. And it's really just the same thing as we read in Galatians chapter 6 where Paul wrote to that body, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. There's the characteristic we should have in our response to this generation and the things that we have to defend from Romans 1. But Paul then finished that thought with an additional one. He said, keeping watch on our own hearts, lest we too be tempted. So we address the transgressions in the world around us with gentleness, but with a humble watchfulness on our own hearts. And you know, as Paul continues to move through Romans, that charge, that challenge, that warning keeps coming back. Talk to the Jews about it. He'll do that in the next chapter. Don't get proud about the things that you've received. It's humble repentance and faith that God accepts. The righteousness of God is by faith from beginning to end. It can only be received by faith, and that faith on the far side of repentance, acknowledging my fallenness. So there's the warning we want to give, the, the takeaway that we want to hear Three things to remember as takeaways from this text. And I'll give them to you in a sentence each. I think would be helpful to each one of us to stand firmly on Romans 1, but in a non-condemning, gentle, circumspect way. First, remember, it's possible to know God and yet turn away from Him. It's possible to know God and yet turn away from him. This does not mean that we can savingly believe and then lose that status. That's not what I mean. I mean the same thing that Paul means when he used virtually these same words right here in Romans 1. They knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So it doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. It does mean, though, that we can be warm toward the things of the Lord and even involved in his work without saving belief having taken place. Saving belief in Jesus himself as Savior and Lord. And it's the course of our lives from the time where we come into an understanding of that gospel message, the course our lives follow that prove whether we truly embraced him by faith or are just sort of warm to the things of the gospel. It was, after all, Jesus who said at the close of the Sermon on the Mount that opened with the Beatitudes that we read this morning, 
in verses 22 and following in Matthew 7, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Wow. The intent of this is not to strike fear into the hearts of true believers who can struggle with the reality of their faith. The purpose is to recognize that you can get awfully close to the gospel, just sort of sidle up next to the church, the, 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 the community of the redeemed, to the point where you see things that only happen in the church happening right there in you and through you at times without ever bowing the knee in repentance and faith to the true and living God. Paul is talking on that subject here in Romans 1. So we need to be aware of the fact that we can go the wrong direction when we read poignant descriptions like this one of other people's sins. We can go the wrong direction with that, but as we do, it reveals something about our own hearts. That's exactly what they did when confronted with the truth of God. They went the wrong direction with it. We don't need to enter into condemnation of people that we are no better than ourselves before God. We don't need to enter into condemnation of them. We need to guard our own hearts. Then just keep helping them to understand God's word as it comes to bear on their lives, modeling what happens when it comes to bear on ours. It's possible to know God and yet turn away from him. That's the language Paul uses here. Number two, ceasing to worship and give thanks are signs of this turning away. Ceasing to worship and give thanks are signs of this turning away. It's never healthy or wise for believers to stop worshiping and giving thanks to God. Never. It's never good. Even to forsake, um, I would say, a single opportunity for that engagement. It's never good even to grow soft in these disciplines. Or, or surely to become critical of them or of how others do them. Worship and thanksgiving are where we need to live as believers. Worship and thanksgiving are the spiritual air that we breathe as the church. And these expressions are cultivated in community right here as we gather with the body of Christ. Our personal worship and thanksgiving to God is cultivated and shaped and directed as we gather together with the body of Christ. We're formed spiritually in our corporate worship together to take those disciplines with us when we go and be stabilized in them. 
toward the clear proclamation of the gospel and toward the defense of challenging truths like this in the world out there with gentleness and circumspection. Those who suppress God's truth, we can note here down in verse 32, also seek community. They want to be numbered among those who agree with them. We can see that happening in our day. Those who suppress the truth also have a community. They want to be in the company of those who agree. And their confidence in their own views is cultivated there. This is a genuine challenge that happens. And we need to be strengthened right here in these disciplines of worship and thanksgiving in order to be ready to defend these truths when we have opportunity to do so. So, it's possible to know God and yet turn away from Him. Ceasing to worship and give thanks are signs of this turning away. And third and finally, give yourselves continuously to worship and thanksgiving. It's a simple bottom line outcome. Give yourselves content continuously to worship and thanksgiving. This is not a direct charge from the text. Let me be clear in saying that, but it surely is an implication here with the explicit mention of these two disciplines and the role that they play in Paul's argument. So it surely should be a warning and a takeaway for each of us as we engage them in this text. When we see that what it is that allows people to become futile in their thinking and turn into fools even while they're thinking they're very wise. Don't follow that course. Keeping our eyes focused on the eternal power and divine nature of God that He's made known to us undeniably since the creation of the world and responding to that power and deity with awe-filled worship and thankfulness is the takeaway we should gain right here and right now from the start in this amazingly insightful paragraph, this troublingly accurate description of our day and age. Or we could land there ourselves if we don't. There's a charge worth hearing. There's a pursuit that's worthy of an image-bearing creature by the strength and power that God enables. And perhaps helping others then to see the presence and power of God all around them in this world is the best way for us to respond to Romans 1 on their behalf. Just worshiping and giving thanks to God routinely in the company of any and all people in this world. It could be the entry point to representing the truths of this text with people who desperately need to hear it. Worship and thanksgiving. Please join me as we pray. And as we pray, musicians, please return to the front. And communion servers, join me at the table. Heavenly Father, Help us grasp this text of Scripture and embrace it. <clears throat> Help us embrace it not as a club with which to beat this generation in which we live for their 
stubborn hard-heartedness and foolishness. Help us, Lord God, to be instructed by this text and enlightened as to how that foolishness begins. Where is the seed that allows that to grow and develop? And I pray, Lord God, that as we recognize the sinfulness in the world around us and as we then are reacquainted with the sinfulness in our own hearts, press us into the gospel that we receive by faith, this righteousness of God that is ours by trusting in Christ. And I pray, Lord God, that we might be empowered, emboldened to proclaim that very truth to those who need to hear in our generation, recognizing that it alone can deliver us from the foolishness to which we gravitate on our own. And then, Lord God, may you receive all the glory and praise for the lives that are changed as that truth is embraced by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.